Welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with Luke Savage. Welcome back, folks. And if you hear the patter of tiny feet throughout this episode, we uh, do have a small furry guest in studio with us today. So that's what's going on. What's her name? Tell us about our third mic. <laughs> our third mic is Rosie. Although, you know, we've brought her in as producer and I'm hoping you know, she'll mostly just kind of be in the background. Well, I've been uh, reading Jean-Luc Godard's collected film criticism again. It's in a book called Godard on Godard, uh, an essential part of any cinephile's library. This was the film criticism he wrote mostly in the 1950s and 60s before and in the early period of him being a filmmaker at Cahiers du Cinema in Paris. And, you know, this is a book that I dependably pick off the shelf every six months at least and look through. And I feel like I've made a breakthrough with it because he's not what you would call a rigorous critic. And so reading it can often be a frustrating experience. Even if you look at some of the like footnotes, the, the editor or the translator will sometimes say, yeah, we have we don't know what he meant here. <laughs> but my feeling about Jean-Luc Godard's film criticism has always been that he threw a lot of stuff at the wall and there are at least 20 sentences in there that have permanently taken residence in my brain and have changed the way I view art or, or at least become part of the tapestry of how I view art. None more so than when he said of Jerry Lewis on the Dick Cavett show, he's more a painter than a filmmaker. <laughs> you hear that and it's like insane. But then after a while, it sits there forever and you start thinking, well, what does he mean by that? You know, he compares him to Chaplin, he compares him to Keaton, and uh, you realize how much of, you know, what a director comedian does is compose the frame. And how do you tell how do you tell a joke in the cinematic frame? You know, I'd like to read two short passages from his film criticism about the work of Nicholas Ray, the director of such films as Rebel Without a Cause. Bigger Than Life, many other great films. In his review of Hot Blood, one of his lesser films, uh, Godard writes, If the cinema no longer existed, Nicholas Ray alone gives the impression of being capable of reinventing it, and what is more, of wanting to. While it is easy to imagine John Ford as an admiral, Robert Aldrich on Wall Street, Anthony Mann on the trail of the Bayou La Fumée, or Raoul Walsh as a latter-day Henry Morgan under Caribbean skies, it is difficult to see the director of Run for Cover doing anything but make films. A Logan or a Tashlin, for instance, might make good in the theater or music hall. Preminger as a novelist, Brooks as a schoolteacher, Fuller as a politician, Cukor a press agent, but not Nicholas Ray. Were the cinema suddenly to cease to exist, most directors would be in no way at a loss. Nicholas Ray would. After seeing Johnny Guitar or Rebel Without a Cause, one cannot but feel that here is something which exists only in the cinema, which would be nothing in a novel, the stage, or anywhere else, but which becomes fantastically beautiful on the screen. Nicholas Ray is morally a director, first and foremost. This explains the fact that in spite of his innate talent and obvious sincerity, a script which he does not take seriously will remain superficial. So he goes on, he gives a rather ambivalent review to that one particular movie, but reading that review, you have to remember the context that when he wrote it, the Cahiers critics were making this very conscious attempt to establish cinema as an art form that was not merely a poorer little brother to theater or literature. They were rebelling against what was called the French tradition of quality. You know, in France, I, I couldn't really tell you the directors off the top of my head, but people who were doing, you know, high-toned literary or theatrical adaptations. Uh, in America, American cinema, the equivalent would have been someone like George Stevens or William Wyler. Uh, I mean, I think Stevens and Wyler made good films, but like they gravitated more towards Alfred Hitchcock, somebody dismissed as a mere entertainer by much of the intelligentsia. But in him, they saw somebody who had qualities that were indigenous to cinema itself. It was in his gaze that was the cinematic gaze. And that was an incredibly powerful gesture at the time. And so, you know, you read that paragraph 
and here's the second paragraph I'll read, which is also a Nicholas Ray film, Bitter Victory. He writes, and it's a variation on themes established in that article. There was theater, Griffith, poetry, Murnau, painting, Rosalini, dance, Eisenstein, music, Renoir. Henceforth, there is cinema, and the cinema is Nicholas Ray. I mean, <laughs> yeah, like you can't help but laugh at it. It's so <laughs> provocative, so ridiculous in some ways, and yet it's 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 flimsy and yet and yet at the same time grandiose. It's a series of of opulent claims built on a castle made of sand, and yet and yet the provocation of it is the point. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of ecstatic truth to it mm-hmm. that I mean, you couldn't argue that Murnau is poetry, whereas Ray is, is cinema in in court. But the polemical gesture of it has a moral weight, particularly at that point in time. And I don't think like you do see sometimes people try to do a sort of pale imitation of what he and the other Kaye critics did at the time. And I think it's unique to that moment. I think if you tried to do something like that now, now that cinema has been sort of established as an art form, I I don't know, you couldn't do it in, in the exact same way he did it at the time. It was it was specific to that context, but in that context and still read today in that context is very powerful and provocative. And also, we've talked about his films before, and he doesn't provide rational arguments so much as a terrain on which to discover. You hear that and you think, okay, Nicholas Ray is cinema. What is the cinema? What makes what makes Nicholas Ray distinct to that art form? And, and, and what is unique about the art form as embodied through Nicholas Ray that makes it unique from all other art forms? Yeah, I mean, and I'll just say, um, quite apart from the argument being made there, the, you know, the, the argument that might be implicit when you kind of go digging and, and, and pull it out. Just at the level of, of prose and writing, right? That's it's very good. It's enjoyable to read. It's a, it's a dynamic paragraph. I saw Will in the week. Socially, not for work. It does still occasionally happen. And uh, we were at a bar with our uh, friend Alex Ross, friend of the pod. And uh, you know, Will was telling us he was you know rereading this book and really enjoying it. And it got me thinking about uh, something, and I think really is a, a genuine challenge in the craft of writing. You know, it's something I think about a lot. I think uh, possibly because of uh, you know my background, you know my, my my parents are, uh, are academics. I have an innate tendency to try to make arguments be sort of intellectually airtight at all times, you know, either in writing or, you know, on this podcast, to have an incredibly precise and when I'm not on my game, an overly precise approach to language where I approach a sentence and think, well, this needs to say that totality of everything that could be said. But the fact is, you know, the best writing, I mean, I won't say it doesn't involve thinking, but the thinking happens more uh, organically and you don't feel, you know, in the, in the in most of the best things I've written, even if they've been a lot of work, it feels like the claims kind of emerge ecstatically. You know, the arguments and, and the prose emerge ecstatically from something within me, as opposed to being something that I, that, you know, are kind of set against this elaborate intellectual scaffold. You know, you read something like that paragraph from Godard, and part of my brain's like, well, okay, this is, I mean, it's, it's bullshit. I mean, but it's also, it's also not bullshit. Like, he's saying something that's, that's true. Although, you know, as you, as you said in your description of the book, there's stuff in it where even the translators and the, you know, the scholars who are doing the footnotes are like, yeah, we don't know what the hell he was talking about. And that's because these are observations he's, he's making off the top of the dome. And there can be, you know, limits to that approach because, you know, doing things off the dome is the opposite of intellectual rigor. Ultimately, I guess I think, you know, uh, the dialectic of writing such as it is, is just one in which you have to keep these two things, a kind of unbound uh, expression of emotions, ideas, whatever. You have to kind of temper that uh, with intellectual rigor and vice versa, frankly. 
I do think it helps to be a genius. And by, <laughs> by genius, I mean somebody capable of, uh, I mean, uh, I don't know what a genius is, but somebody capable of generating original connections and the sorts of insights you've never heard. I mean, one one very last thing. He's reviewing Hollywood or Bust, which is Frank Tashlin's film, the last of the Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis movies. As a French critic, he loved it, of course. And he <laughs> writes, um, and I love it too. Uh, according to Georges Seydoux, who I think is a film critic, Frank Tashlin is a second-rank director because he has never done a remake of You Can't Take It With You or The Awful Truth, which are two very well-regarded Hollywood studio comedies of the 30s. According to me, my colleague errs in mistaking a closed door for an open one. In 15 years' time, people will realize that The Girl Can't Help It served then, today that is, as a fountain of youth from which the cinema now, in the future that is, has drawn fresh inspiration. And he ends his review many paragraphs later by saying, Louis Jouvet quotes somewhere this definition of the theater by Alfred de Vigny. You're just going to have to hold on while he quotes a lot of people who you may not recognize. (laughs) A thought which is metamorphosed into a mechanism. So Tashlin, a man of the cinema and of the cinema in color, does the opposite of Vigny's dictum. The proof is in Jerry Lewis's face, where the height of artifice blends at times with the nobility of true documentary. To sum up, Frank Tashlin has not renovated the Hollywood comedy. He has done better. There is not a difference in degree between Hollywood or Bust and It Happened One Night, between The Girl Can't Help It and Design for Living, but a difference in kind. Tashlin, in other words, has not renewed but created. And henceforth, when you talk about a comedy, don't say it's Chaplin-esque. Say loud and clear, it's Tashlin-esque. <laughs> uh, I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's great stuff. I love it. To Pennsylvania Soon developed that movie mania Writing that jalopies through the dust And moved to Hollywood on watch well, we have a lot more to talk about on this episode, uh, but before that, let's move on to the plugs segment. <laughs> First of all, most importantly, patreon.com slash Michael and us. You know it. We have a Patreon, five Yankee dollars a month for an extra episode every week. And uh, this week, we just watched a little movie called The Blind Side. <laughs> You're not going to want to miss this one, folks. Henceforth, this- do not call it Chaplin-esque. Call it Hancock-esque. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you've been on the fence about subscribing, this might be the moment to give us a try. Look, I was pretty angry when our $10 a month superdelegate tier voted for this to be, you know, the monthly movie that they uh, elect us to watch. I thought, what are we going to talk about with this kind of Oscar Beatty stupid movie that reveals itself entirely within the first 10 minutes? And let me tell you, the experience of watching the film and talking about it uh, cured me of my skepticism for the system of managed democracy we have with our Patreon superdelegate tier. Uh, this movie was so much fun to talk about. Not much fun to watch, though. I mean, <laughs> no. Whoa. No. Awful movie. The most racist thing this side of Birth of a Nation. Awful. Now, Will, you had something personal you wanted to plug. Well, on October 3rd, I have another screening at the Fox Theater. That's a beautiful historic movie theater in Toronto's East End. Uh, flyover. Turkish Air is a great airline. Air China, another great airline. All the four corners of the earth will eventually bring you to Toronto. I only fly Emirates. On October 3rd, uh, we're showing a movie called Things, which is a Canadian direct-to-video horror movie from the late 1980s. Two weird Canadian men who lived in Scarborough picked up an 8mm camera and tried to make a horror film in the year 1989. Uh, Some have called it the worst Canadian horror film of all time. I disagree. (laughs) 
I think it's a beautiful film. It's one direct-to-video horror movie that you really need to see in a theater to appreciate. It is a sensory, immersive experience. It's like if Bob and Doug McKenzie met Kenneth Anger and made a movie together. And best of all, it has a big, big star in it. The adult film performer Amber Lynn, fully clothed, playing a newscaster. One of many bizarre artistic decisions in this film so uh october 3rd link in the show notes to tickets unforgettable night luke uh you have many projects in the go as well well i've only got one uh, project i want to plug here but uh, i've got multiple events coming up around uh seeking social democracy book i've co-authored uh with ed broadbent and colleagues that's out october the 10th on that day all four of us will be at the ottawa writers festival links to these events in the show notes that'll have further details but if you're in ottawa come out to that on the 22nd of october uh, we will be at the toronto reference library I believe that's an afternoon event but again details will be in the show notes and finally just announced yesterday we will be at vancouver's central library on november 1st 2023 at 7 p.m I will be there with Ed, Francis, and Jonathan, and there is a local political commentator and broadcaster named Mo Amir, host of This Is Van Color, who will be moderating the event. I may have some other events to announce soon. Uh, I hope to come to your city. If you own a bookstore or a venue of some kind and you would like to host an event, I don't know, DM me or email me or something and I'll connect you with the publicist for the book. But in the meantime, if you live in Ottawa, Toronto or Vancouver, do come out. I will be there and so will Ed Broadbent. Well, we have a great movie to talk about on this episode. But first, a few more items from the wild world of politics. Yeah, we got to talk about this David Brooks tweet. I mean, I'm assuming, well, no, I don't want to assume that everybody is on Twitter and knows about, you know, the... Uh, the it's called X. <laughs> Excuse uh, me. I, I'm not going to call it that, neither is anyone else. Um, but if you haven't seen it, uh, New York Times columnist David Brooks posted a tweet earlier this week. I'll describe the accompanying image in a second, but the caption simply read, this meal just cost me $78 at Newark Airport. This is why Americans think the economy is terrible. Then what you see in the accompanying photo is a rather kind of dispiriting looking burger that's been kind of half eaten, uh, some lettuce that looks like it was plucked from a bag or like Fuck, mixed Fuck, I'll greens. have it if he doesn't want it. Uh, <laughs> Looks good to me. Uh, and then, you know, sort of at the top of the photo, there's a, you know, a, a glass of whiskey or scotch or something. Now, look, people had to go at this uh, because using a, a little bit of Googling, people were able to identify, you know, the specific table and chair, the cut of the fries, all this kind of stuff. And with the the detail that it's Newark Airport. Well, yeah, it turns out it's something called, uh, I think, Smokehouse Restaurant in Newark Airport Terminal A. And uh, yeah, the menu's online. So yeah, the burger and fries combo costs $17. Now look, there's a whole meta discourse about this tweet now. It's been viewed 34.1 million times. Allegedly, who knows how accurate the uh, metrics are on this stupid website today. But you know, there's some people that, that are saying, well, maybe Brooks, you know, Brooks is making a joke. You know, the placement of the whiskey is in interesting because, you know, if it is a joke, then presumably the joke is like, look at this prole food in front of me. I'm the kind of guy who drinks whiskey with a burger and fries because I'm an out of touch New York Times columnist. Like I'm not saying that's what he was trying to do, but that's the only plausible interpretation of this tweet that makes it out to be a, a joke to me. And for the record, I'm, I'm skeptical. Yeah, I'm very skeptical. It was a joke uh, as well. And it got me thinking about Brooks's sort of I mean, pretty storied history of using food to awkwardly uh, discuss the state of class and, and economics in modern America. If you don't know what I'm talking about, there was this 2017 
column that made the rounds. You know, I actually read the whole column and it was actually worse than I remembered because what everyone remembers is the sort of anecdotal part at the end where, I mean, I'll just read from it here. Recently, I took a friend with only a high school degree to lunch. Insensitively, I led her into a gourmet sandwich shop. Suddenly, I saw her face freeze up as she was confronted with sandwiches named Padrino and Pomodoro and ingredients like Soprasata, Capicolo, and a Striata baguette. I quickly asked her if she wanted to go somewhere else, and she anxiously nodded yes, and we ate Mexican. So everyone remembers that part. But it's even better if you read the paragraphs leading up to it, because Brooke spent the first part of the column reviewing a book, I'm forgetting the name, he just read, uh, which is all about social mobility in America and uh, these kind of very real material barriers to social mobility. You know, things like, uh, I think this is one of you know, like the price of college tuition, you know, things like that. And then Brooke says about halfway down the column, he says, while this book was bracing, you know, I've come to think that, quote, the informal social barriers that segregate the lower 80 percent, you know, that's actually what's really more important. And by that, he meant these kind of layers of, you know, uh, sophistication and taste and the sort of uh, impenetrable vernacular spoken by the upper orders of society. So we kind of uplift ourselves through the consumption of like the good art and the good culture <laughs> and uh, the good food. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's jumping ahead a bit, but I mean, I think that is very much what's going on here. There is a view that runs throughout, um, and this is, this is not something to indict Brooks for exclusively, there's a view that runs throughout an influential strain of American American conservatism, and I think now at this point, to some extent, liberalism as well, where there's a view that, you know, everything is epiphenomenal to culture. So it's not that people's class locations often then mean they have, you know, certain tastes or use certain language that's exclusive to people of their class location or whatever. Their cultural location somehow kind of precedes those things and then determines might be too strong a word. But those things kind of, uh, well, I don't know, maybe determine is the word, uh, their, their class identity. Now, I also want to uh, call everyone's attention to a piece that you probably haven't heard of. And this is a, a long essay Brooks wrote in 2001 for The Atlantic. It was called One Nation Slightly Divisible. It was basically a sort of lengthy piece of reportage related to the preceding year's contentious presidential election. And, you know, uh, the conceit was kind of predictable. Um, I mean, I don't know. There were a ton of these, you know, after 2016. I'd be interested to know uh, how common this type of piece was uh, before then. But basically, Brooks visited two different counties, one red, one blue. And, you know, he was he's trying to use what he saw there to, to illustrate the divides in the country cultural and political that had come out during the Gore-Bush race. Which in retrospect, by the way, I think is funny just because, you know, when I think of like a really fierce ideological battle, I don't think of Bush v. Gore. George Bush actually kind of ran as like a centrist moderate and Al Gore is, he's Al Gore. <laughs> but so Brooks visited Maryland's Montgomery County where uh, he himself lived at the time and Franklin County in Pennsylvania. And, you know, Pennsylvania was a blue state at the time, but uh, Franklin was a, a red county. And Brooks writes, I went to Franklin County because I wanted to get the sense of how deep the divide really is. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about how he crossed something of his own invention called the meatloaf line. After about 45 minutes, I pass a Cracker Barrel, Red America condensed into chain restaurant form. I've crossed the meatloaf line. 
From here on, there will be a lot fewer sun-dried tomato concoctions on restaurant menus and a lot more meatloaf platters. Franklin County is a place where no blue state, New York Times delivery bags dot driveways on Sunday mornings, where people don't complain that Woody Allen isn't as funny as he used to be because they never thought he was funny. In red America, churches are everywhere. In blue America, Thai restaurants are everywhere. Again, food. In red America, they have QVC, the Pro Bowlers Tour, and hunting. In blue America, we have NPR, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and socially conscious investing. Yep, that about sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> Those are the two Americas. So so this, it goes on and on and on. Uh, And I found a piece, you know, I want to shout out uh, to the writer of this piece, you know, I think is a a reasonably well-known journalist, but Sasha Eisenberg wrote a piece called David Brooks' Boo-Boos in Paradise for Philly Mag. It came out a few years later, but among other things in this piece, he runs through, should we say, some of the factual liberties that Brooks took in painting this extremely sort of reductive sketch of, uh, you know, red and blue America. There was that reference to QVC uh, Brooks made, which is a shopping channel, you know, that's supposed to be a red state thing. And well, actually, it turned out it has a larger audience in wealthy blue districts. And this is something the CEO of QVC said at the time, I think directly to Isenberg. Brooks writes, everything that people in my neighborhood do without motors, the people in red America do with motors. When it comes to yard work, they have rider mowers. We have illegal aliens. Well, actually, in the early 2000s anyway, there were more red states that had high populations of undocumented people than there were blue states. And it goes on and on and on. You know, there's a funny one about NASCAR drivers. You know, we we blue state Americans couldn't name five NASCAR drivers. Well, like actually the big NASCAR racing series that year, like three of the top five TV markets were in blue states. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then we come back to Brooks's obsession with kind of using food to illustrate these divides. Quote, on my journeys to Franklin County, I set a goal. I was going to spend $20 on a restaurant meal, but although I ordered the most expensive thing on the menu, steak au jus, slippery beef pot pie or whatever, I always failed. I began asking people to direct me to the most expensive places in town. They would send me to Red Lobster or Applebee's. I'd scan the menu and realize that I'd been beaten once again. I went through great vats of chip beef and seafood delight, that's in quotes, because he wants you to know that's not a real dish. Trying to drop $20. I waded through enough surf and turfs and enough creamed corn to last a lifetime. I could not do it. Now, would you believe that it's actually very easy to find ways to eat for more than $20 in Franklin County? It seems that just a cursory survey of local establishments finds that you can spend, you know, 30, 40 bucks on a steak and lobster dish. And my favorite thing in the piece was that the owners of the local inn that it's kind of like the best joint around. Eisenberg went there and he had a $50 dinner that had an entree of veal medallions served with lump crab and artichoke tower, wild rice pilaf, and a sage caper cream sauce. Now he asked the couple that owned this local inn uh, if they'd read Brooks's piece. And they said, well, he actually came to stay with us after we, you know, we hosted him after the piece came out because he was, you know, speaking at a college in town or something. And one of them says, for breakfast, I made a goat cheese and sun-dried tomato tart. Uh, but then Brooks just said uh, he wanted scrambled eggs, which I love. I love that detail. But, you know, I'm saying all this and, and you know, uh, retreading this old David Brooks piece, not simply to add weight to the idea that, you know, with his uh, burgers and fries tweet, he was not making a joke nor to kind of be incredulous that you can be that sloppy in like a long essay for, you know, a magazine like The Atlantic and apparently get away with it. I guess, you know, the New York Times has allowed Tom Friedman to just invent conversations with cab drivers whole cloth for quite a while. But I think there's more going on here than just sort of being sloppy, you know? There's more going on here than trying to turn the plural of data into anecdote. 
it has become increasingly common. I mean, not just on the right, but I think particularly on, you know, certainly a strain of the right anyway, to see everything as epiphenomenal of culture. I mean, we saw this after Donald Trump's election, right, where there was a whole wave of these pieces like Brooks's 2001 essay, where the conceit was, okay, we got a we got an out of touch coastal journalist who voted for Hillary. We're going to send them on an exotic safari to meet the exotic tribes who live in the hinterland. And yeah, a lot of those pieces, you know, what they came back with was something like what he did, where it's like, oh, yeah, you go and there's just flags and churches everywhere and people are always eating at Applebee's. That's the only cuisine they have. And you can't get a glass, you can't get a dang glass of wine anywhere because the rubes are only drinking beer. You know, J.D. Vance obviously had the super hit with uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is a book that liberals gobbled up, you know, after 2016, because the argument was basically, oh, yeah, the people where I come from, they're culturally defective. And that's what explains Trumpism. Now, one of the implications of thinking about culture in this particular way and kind of privileging it like this is that when you see class as being sort of secondary to it or subordinate to it, some very funny things start to happen. So this is how you get the incredible passage from Ron DeSantis's recent book, which by the way, RIP Ron DeSantis, you know, this was his election year kind of memoir where he says, I was geographically raised in Tampa Bay, but culturally my upbringing reflected the working class communities in Western Pennsylvania and Northeast Ohio from weekly church attendance to the expectation that one would earn his keep. This made me God fearing, hardworking and America loving. So that's, that's basically Ron DeSantis being like, I identify as blue collar Midwestern. I think this is how conservatives think about class, but there's also a certain strain of liberal. And, you know, we're talking about David Brooks. I think most of his audience are just educated liberals. But there's this thinking about class and class identity that really can only see it in terms of these cultural signifiers, which then inevitably people just insert their own stereotypes, their own prejudices about like what the group they don't belong to is like. You know, this is how you got stuff after 2016 about, you know, yeah, the working class voters for Trump who were, yes, suburban boat dealership owners who make $400,000 a year, but they don't be doing no book learning and they drive a gas guzzling SUV. To me, this is why the David Brooks tweet was so widely lampooned, because I think more and more people aren't really buying this kind of odd mystification of inequality and and class and hierarchy that's been the part and parcel of people like uh, David Brooks for many years. And I think you really see that with the uh, Republican response, especially the very confused and incoherent Republican response to the UAW strike, where, you know, these Republicans like Josh Hawley, Marco Rubio, you know, Trump as well, DeSantis, who've made such a big deal about how, you know, Republicans are now, we're the blue collar party, we're the working class party. Surely as the, you know, blue collar working class party, it would be a simple matter to support, you know, this unprecedented strike at all three of the biggest automakers. And instead, what we've seen are these very bizarre kind of rhetorical triangulations where, you know, Josh Hawley will be like, yeah, I support the workers and they deserve a raise, but there's no mention of, of the union and there's no concreteness given to the demand. It's not, I support the actual demand they're making. It's like, I support them getting a raise. Well, I mean, the automakers have already offered them a raise. So his position is actually totally consistent with the management side as well. There's then all these bizarre pivots. Trump has done this and DeSantis too, where, you know, they're trying to make the strike about electric vehicles as if, you know, the UAW is striking because of emissions standards. They're trying to make it about geopolitical competition with China. It's like the Biden administration's woke emission standards passed in the Inflation Reduction Act 
are destroying the American auto industry and making it impossible for us to focus on the real enemy, which is China. And again here, like this is what right-wing workerism begets. This is what it gives us. You know, all these guys know that they need to sort of feign some sort of sympathy with the auto workers, but they can't actually just come out and support the union and its demands because they don't support those things. For them, the significance of something like the UAW strike is just that the workers are blue collar. And so rather than seeing this as a, as a political struggle, as an expression of class struggle, like for them, the priority is protecting, you know, the, the important cultural identity of being an auto worker. And again, that's the kind of ridiculous bullshit that you get when you're on the right and you think about class as an expression of culture as opposed to it being the other way around. Everything is food, food, food. to the movie, I very briefly want to address another item that was raised last week on the podcast, a more local news story. Uh, we mentioned to you on the podcast last week that, you know, much like Richard Jewell himself, uh, <laughs> our, our, the premier of the province of Ontario, Doug Ford, had been railroaded by a zealous government and media. <laughs> Uh, well, it seems he's buckled under the pressure. Last week, we told you that his government was under fire for just wanting to address the housing crisis, just wanting to develop some uh, protected lands that housed nothing but swamp and trees and greenery to give people homes. And who could object to that? But bureaucracy in the form of the integrity commissioner came in and said that certain developments were prioritizing certain wealthy landowners who may have had certain connections to certain members who, of Ford's may, cabinet. Who may or may not have been in direct contact with the chief of staff to the housing minister and just being like, yeah, we'll have that. We'll have that. Circumstantial we'll have that. evidence, yeah. my friend. Yeah. And, you know, the the head of fundraising. They fit, they fit the profile of a, <laughs> of a wealthy landowner engaging in corruption. And that's a, good enough for some of you. That's right. People will see something like the head of the PC party's fundraising wing selling tickets to Doug Ford's daughter's stag and doe party to a bunch of wealthy developers and think that there's something untoward going on there. Anyway, yeah, this scandal has kind of surprised me in some ways because I'm actually surprised and heartened by the extent of the public response to it. You know, I feel like over the past five or six years, there's been a lot of, in my view, sort of toothless stuff about how, well, we just need a more crusading media. And that's how we sort of defeat, you know, corruption. That's how we clip the wings of right-wing demagogues. The thing is, though, in this case, I mean, there are many reporters who can give themselves a pat on the back here. I mean, folks at the Narwhal in particular, local reporters who cover Ontario politics here in Toronto. I mean, there's just been this steady stream of stories that have involved a lot of investigating, a lot of digging and that have basically made this a crisis that is impossible for the government to handle. The reason Will brings it up is because just yesterday the Ford government announced they're reversing this $8.3 billion land swap deal. They're not doing it. Ford, Doug Ford is very, very sorry. The way, yeah, He's the, very sorry. The way you know it's serious is that he's showing contrition. A full retreat. Yeah, and this is coming after, you know, months and months of absolutely nothing went on here. We're just trying to build homes. You know, it's, it's really Really, really embarrassing. I made a promise to you that I wouldn't touch the green belt. I broke that promise. And for that, I am very, very sorry. 
I pride myself on keeping our promises. It was a mistake to open the green belt. It was a mistake to establish a process that moved too fast. This process, it left too much room for some people to benefit over others. Uh, another cabinet minister resigned. This is the third one, I think, in two weeks. This is right after Ford made the announcement. But ultimately, Ford realizes that he broke the Greenbelt promise. He <laughs> promised not to develop on that land, and he broke that promise. And for that, he's very sorry. <laughs> And it's back to the drawing board. That's right. And uh, I mean, this story is not going to end. I mean, because if all these ministers are resigning, like more and more stuff is just going to come out. What they're doing with this apology and this reversal is they're trying to get ahead of that stuff so that they can flip the news cycle to something else. And I mean, I don't think it's going to work because if all these people are leaving, something criminal or multiple somethings criminal, allegedly, may have happened. You know, while we're at it, maybe the same reporters should start digging into what's going on at Ontario Place. Yeah, instead of investigating an American hero <laughs> named Richard Jewell. I want you to say into this phone, there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Richard, you're a national hero now. Thank you, sir. But I was just doing my job. found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. Jewel fits the profile of the lone bomber. A frustrated white man who is a police wannabe who seeks to become a hero. We're running it. You're a suspect. You don't talk. I talk. Say it. I don't talk. This might be the only way to clear your name. I want you to say there's a bomb in Centennial Park. You have 30 minutes. Stop trying to be their best friend. I was raised to respect authority. Authorities are looking to eat you alive. I'm in Centennial Park. We have 30 minutes. Richard Jewell is Clint Eastwood's 2019 film about the railroading by government and media of the hero who discovered the bomb at the 1996 Atlanta Summer Olympics. Richard Jewell was a humble security guard who dreamed of becoming law enforcement, but was nevertheless almost immediately targeted as the most likely suspect of the bombing. He fit the profile, a lone white male with a background of frustrated dreams, somebody who had been arrested for impersonating a police officer, the kind of guy who looks like he'd be in a militia. His name was eventually cleared, but in a deeper sense, his name was never cleared because the damage had been done. Uh, his name was never cleared until Clintus Eastwood made this film. Uh, now, I'm a fan of this movie. I knew that Luke would like it. It's got all the stuff that's good about late period Eastwood. It's got all the stuff that's ambiguous and potential culture war hot potato in Eastwood's later films. This movie was acclaimed in many circles when it came out, but not without controversy. Some of it valid, some of it less so. Both the film and its reception are definitely an, an interesting token of the Trump era. And I'd like to look back on this movie now and uh, agree once and for all the dudes rock. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm interested in, in exploring that angle, and I'm not entirely sure if, uh, if we agree here. I will say right off the bat, Will was right to predict that I would enjoy this film. I mean, I think it's filmmaking like this that is the reason, you know, uh, Clint Eastwood is, you know, America's 
Cruz's premier conservative artist, you know, best conservative artist, best conservative filmmaker. Watching this film, I was certainly aware, I mean, I actually hadn't realized that it came out as recently as 2019, but I was certainly aware based on certain things in it, certain lines, certain images that, okay, this is a movie that will just be so kind of irredeemably encoded for some people as, I don't know, a red state film or whatever that, you know, they won't, they won't give it the time of day. But I think it is a brilliant and beautiful film in many ways. I found myself very moved in certain moments. I think that it is a more nuanced film than, you know, a lot of its critics would probably concede. I think Richard Jewell is a fascinating character, his character with a lot of depth, played absolutely brilliantly by Paul Walter Hauser. I mean, just a, a tour de force performance, a performance that successfully portrays Richard Jewell both as a figure worthy of pathos and empathy, and also somebody who has a potentially very dangerous and alarming and potentially destructive fascination with kind of power and authority. Incredible performance from Paul Walter Hauser. Uh, Sam Rockwell is great as his attorney. Uh, Kathy Bates as as Richard Jewell's mother, Barbara. John Hamm is great as uh, an FBI agent who is the most unredeemable piece of shit I've ever seen portrayed on screen. Yes, but what about Olivia Wilde? Well, we'll come back to that. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with Olivia Wilde's performance. I think it's I think it's great. What what Will is alluding to here is the fact that uh, you know there was some controversy. I think deserved controversy in. This this instance around the film, because Olivia Wilde is playing a journalist, uh, Kathy Scruggs, a journalist at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, who passed away from a, an overdose in 2001. But I mean, Olivia Wilde is actually, this is the name of the character. And in the film, there is a scene where she and John Hamm, uh, his character, have sex as a kind of quid pro quo. You know, she has sex with him to get confidential information that she can then report. And so that, you know, this didn't happen. And so it is pretty slanderous. It's defamatory. Like, they should have changed the name of the character, or they should have done something like, I don't know, broken it up into two characters, you know, done something that just made it so that there was... It's a, a composite character yeah, it's in a composite some way. character, whatever. This is purely in the service of narrative and, you know... So, I mean, it was defended on grounds of artistic license. And, I mean, look, in the narrative of the film, you know, I think it works. I have some objections to the character, which we'll talk about later. I actually... I don't think the character's not, nothing to do with Olivia Wilde's performance, but I think the character is perhaps a little incoherent. We'll, we'll get to that when we talk about the plot. Now, Olivia Wilde, for her part, defended the uh, portrayal of, of the character. She argued there was a sexist double standard because no one said the same thing about John Hamm's portrayal of the FBI agent. Now, you know, people pointed out that the FBI agent actually was a composite of multiple individuals. So it's not exactly the same. But certainly the defense of it would be that it is, it is artistic license and that what this film is fundamentally interested in is, you know, the wrongful accusal of Richard Jewell. And the thing is, I think that's defensible on the on the level of art, but it's, it's not defensible. You know, you can't write a real character into the movie that's based on a true story and then, you know, have them do something extremely unethical that they actually didn't do. The opening scenes of this movie set the tone. And I think in the opening scenes, we see everything great about Clint Eastwood's late movies. The film opens and Richard Jewell is just in like the worst office building you've ever seen. And Will turned to me and he's like, see, this is why I love Clint Eastwood's later films, because everything looks like shit. It's all strip malls and cubicles. You got it. Like <laughs> bad Legion halls, bad offices, bad hotels. I mean, this man is showing you what America looks like. By the way, not red America, just America. Yeah, uh, America. Yeah. No, seriously. Any State of the Union looks like this. And uh, what he thinks should be done about it may be different than what you think should be done about it. <laughs> it, but he's showing reality. 
It's at this law firm, I believe, where Richard Jewell's, I think, a janitor, and he meets Watson Bryant, a young lawyer played by Sam Rockwell, who we learn very quickly is the only lawyer in the building who treats him with any kind of kindness. Richard Jewell is overweight, not the sharpest tool in the drawer, but nevertheless, he is a human being. Watson Bryant, it should be said, doesn't treat him with that much kindness. He kind of ribs him a little bit, you know, much like George W. Bush, he gives him a nickname, Radar. The power imbalance is established very quickly, and yet he still talks to him like a human being. So the two of them connect after work one day, uh, they happen to be in the same uh, video game arcade and they uh, you know two grown men meeting in a video arcade as one does you know why not they shoot some bad guys on the cop game yeah and... I, I yeah I really love this scene the game they're playing incidentally I looked it up it's called turkey shoot and I think the game was very carefully chosen because yeah it's one of those arcade games where you, you hold the plastic gun and you shoot at the screen and on the screen we see a bunch of little blue cops running around and then we see robbers and I guess the goal of the game is you shoot the robbers but not the cops and I don't know I feel like this so elegantly conveys kind of what's going on inside of Richard Jewell's psyche. You know, his only aspiration in life is to be law enforcement. Now, regardless of what you think of that, for him as a person, this is the only thing that he thinks can give him kind of any purpose or reason for existing. The more potentially noxious flip side of that being that it's the only position he can see himself in where he gets any respect, where he gets to be a guy with a gun who's working as an agent of the state and, you know, arresting bad guys. He sees the world in very simplistic terms, you know, according to many of the sort of, uh, I guess, myths that are popular and, and kind of foundational on the right about, you know, faith, flag, country, good guys, bad guys, law, order, all the rest of it. And so this is what I love so much about this scene, because you can both see how there's something about Richard Jewell that's potentially quite sinister, but also you can see just how kind of abject and pathetic he is. Like he has this fantasy about being in law enforcement and the only place where he's really able to act it out. Like we see him at a gun range later in the film, but like this isn't even a real gun range. He's not even firing a real gun. He's playing a video game for children. And this is what I love about the late period Clint Eastwood movies. He's one of the few guys giving you that kind of ambiguity. And I think that ambiguity is valuable because the world is painted in shades of gray. Richard Jewell is an aspiring petty fascist, but he's also pathetic. Yeah, not to belabor the scene, but there was a, a line that I wrote down because it was so good where you know he's playing this arcade game and he says, it's good practice for my future in law enforcement. Presumably where he'll be like killing robbers. Yeah, yeah. He says, I study the penal code every night so that you know I can have my exciting future protecting people. And so it's just incredible, the juxtaposition of those two things where he's like, oh, I study the penal code every night. And I'm practicing for my future in law enforcement. And then what he's actually doing is playing a, like a children's video game. And so this scene ends with Watson Bryant, the attorney, saying something along the lines of when people get a little bit of power, they turn into assholes. So Richard, please don't become an asshole. And then... Eastwood cuts to some months or years in the future. The setup for that scene is, is Jewel is coming to him and saying, oh, I need to give my notice because I've gotten a really exciting job in law enforcement. His job in law enforcement is as a rent-a-cop. <laughs> On a college campus. Yeah, and the next scene is him in a dorm terrorizing the students, basically. <laughs> he, he muscles his way into this one room where some of the kids are drinking. Some young ruffians are, yeah, having a libation. And he's uh, no good. brandishing his uh, battering 
rod, the, the tossing scene, his weight around. The scene is amazing because the student, you know, kind of tries to stand up to him a little bit because they, they don't respect him because he's not a real cop. And then the student kind of falls over and then Jules says, you okay there, sir, or something like that. And I think this is why this movie is so powerful. I mean, I, I feel like there's something like this that's worthy of note in every single scene. Just what this conveys, like the juxtaposition of the pathetic and also the sinister. Because here it's like Richard Jewell is getting off on the fact that he's able to like one up. He's able to be the alpha against this, I don't know, like 17 year old who's having a beer. A little little rich kid, a a handsome rich kid uh, who would make fun of him in any other context. That's right. But then the caress in his voice when he says, you know, you okay there, sir? You know, he's enjoying this so much because this is the only, you know, forum in his life where he's been able to do this, where he's been able to have any authority. After this, we have one of the best uh, comedy scenes in the film. Yeah, so it cuts to Jewel hours or days later in the university administrator's office. You know, the very distinguished bow-tied man at the desk is saying, Mr. Jewel, it seems that uh, we've had complaints about you terrorizing our students in their dorms. And 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 what's this? You've been pulling over people on the highway? You're, yeah. not, you're not a cop. You can't pull people over on the highway. Yeah, his supervisor's like, we don't have any jurisdiction there. And Richard Jewel says... Well, the way I see it, you know, uh, we, we stop people on the highway, then, you know, the crime never makes its way to campus. You said you didn't want any Mickey Mouse on campus. As <laughs> a whole explanation for, do you want the kids drinking in their dorms? And, and the, guy, the guy says, uh, okay, do you want to resign or should I fire you? There's then two scenes where one in, one in which Richard Jewell goes home to his mom, played, as I said, brilliantly by Kathy Bates. You see in the apartment you know, he, where he lives, he lives with his mom. You see this very silly portrait of him on the wall where he's looking very proud in some kind of, I don't know, law enforcement adjacent uniform. This is his entire identity. And he's sort of talking about another job that he's just gotten as a as a security guard. So it's it's even less of a plausibly a law enforcement job. And he says, it's still law enforcement, ain't it, mom? And, and she says, well, yeah, you're still fighting the bad guys, right? You're still protecting people. There's also a scene on a shooting range where Richard Jewell is talking to a friend of his and explaining that when the supervisor called him into his office, office he thought he was getting a promotion and he can't believe that you know he he got fired for that and you know this is something else about Richard Jewell you know it's really important to understand about the character is he has such an investment in particular ideas and particular institutions in a kind of romantic conception of certain authority being inherently possessed of virtue and legitimacy that he actually is just incredulous when things like this happen. He cannot understand how you could get fired for just protecting people and enforcing the law. And these points about his character are very important for later in the film. The next job we see him get is as a security guard at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics. He specifically requested to be stationed where the nightly entertainment is happening, the Kenny Rogers performances and such. And <laughs> by the way, this this actually may be my favorite scene of the movie. Oh, it's incredible. Nothing happens in it. Amazing scene. Here we encounter John Hamm as the FBI guy and Olivia Wilde as the journalist. I think we may as well just use those terms. <laughs> FBI guy, journalist. We, 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 we meet Chad and Stacy. That's right. <laughs> they are in the middle of this crowd of hicks and yokels. Doing the Macarena. Suburban loot. 
losers. They're doing the Macarena. John John Hamm is like, uh, I didn't think this song actually existed. <laughs> yeah, and they're laughing at all these people. And Clint's camera mercilessly showing you this crowd of people doing the Macarena, lingering on it. And uh, I was reminded of when I was a journalist at the Woolwich Observer, watching the just Will at the Wellesley Apple Butter Festival, just shaking his dang head at the uh, <laughs> Labor Day soapbox derby and uh, and fishing event. Just thinking, I was so much better than this you know i'm from the city i went to columbia okay exactly and so i'm looking at this feeling like a very unpleasant twinge of recognition in these characters um and that's why if there's any listen if there's any defense of the broad strokes in which the olivia wilde character is done it's obviously you should not slander an actual person but the character as like a representative of the media what the movie is saying is they do not regard themselves as our protectors they're not of us the journalist likes to be with the FBI guy because access is power. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, John Hamm is the FBI guy. He's probably not from around here. You know, he's probably just sort of, you know, putting in his time here until he can get a promotion at, you know, the bureau in D.C. or something like that. And he probably resents being, you know, uh, shipped out to the hinterland. Olivia Wilde, similarly, her character, you know, she's working at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, which, of course, you know, it's not it's not a tiny local paper. It's a major city newspaper. She's just putting in her time and she's doing all the access journalism that she needs to do that's going to get her, you know, job as, you know, political correspondent at the, you know, Washington Post or something. And the thing is, yeah, these are broad generalizations, but I mean, I mean, come on, folks, people like this do absolutely exist. And they absolutely look on the other people in this scene who are doing the Macarena and listening to Kenny Rogers. And they absolutely look on these other people in the scene, you know, who are doing the Macarena and dancing along to Kenny Rogers as lesser beings who they treat with contempt. And of course, the important wrinkle to all this is that Richard Jewell is legitimately a loser and a freak. So in this scene where he discovers the bomb, he's been throwing his weight around all day, being a little too eager, being a little too I'm law enforcement. Everybody's been kind of rolling their eyes at him. Then he discovers what appears to be an explosive. He's running around being like, we got to evacuate. There's an explosive. Everybody's rolling their eyes. Yeah, we don't we don't take orders from you. Yeah, the other security guys, you know, because there's various sort of departments here chipping in, some of whom are actually law enforcement. They're just saying, oh, why even bother to call it in? It's just a bag. Let's just open it. And he's saying, no, we have to follow the proper procedure. And then, yeah, he's running around once they have established that it's a bomb, telling everybody we need to evacuate. And people like barely take him seriously this sequence again it's just everything about it is so brilliant in what it conveys because when he agitates enough when he yells enough people sort of grudgingly go along with it because they hear oh there's a bomb but even in that it takes them so much longer to respond to it than if you know john ham went around and said exactly the Which, same thing when he does in a minute when yeah. he's like i'll take it from here uh, yeah. everybody follows uh-huh. so the bomb goes off many people are injured but fewer than if jewel had not intervened and the next day he's a hero He's on the news. Tom Brokaw wants to talk to him. His mom, by the way, established that she loves Tom Brokaw and uh, thinks he's he's so handsome. Just a darling character. A major publisher wants to publish his autobiography, and that's what brings him back into contact with Watson Bryant, a staunchly anti-authoritarian lawyer who has left the law firm and started his own struggling firm. And uh, I like that when we see him in his firm, uh, he's got a sticker behind him that says, I fear government more than terror." 
terrorism. Right, and this is very significant because the bomb placed at the Atlanta Olympics was planted by some kind of right-wing militia. We see the bomb threat phone caller, one of them, and it's, you know, some guy calling the cops and saying, you know, you disobeyed the militia or something. This is the kind of thing that gives the film quite a lot of layers because it's obviously not in sympathy with the people who planted the bomb, but it's also a film that's, you know, very distrustful of the FBI and the ATF. There's a reference later in the movie, such a subtle stroke of genius where, you know, we're watching the Olympics and there's a runner, I'm forgetting the athlete's first name, but Johnson, who's from Waco, Texas, and he, you know, breaks his own record on the 100 meter dash or something. So little reference to Waco dropped in there. And then a few minutes later, various federal law enforcement agencies show up to conduct this incredibly degrading raid on the house, one of which is the ATF. And I'm sorry, that's just not a coincidence. Clint Eastwood and the screenwriters absolutely put that sequence in on purpose. By the way, just a note on style. It's funny. I mean, Eastwood sometimes in his career has a weakness for, you know, ham-fisted dramatics. I'm thinking Mystic River in particular, but I mean, you know, elements of the John Hamm and Olivia Wilde characters in this movie as well. Yeah. But then also his decision in this movie to use very little music. And when he does use music, it comes at moments of kind of extreme emotional catharsis. And then he lays in a little bit of the light piano music that I think he himself composes. The fact that so much of this, like those early scenes of Watson Bryant being kind to Richard Jewell, but then Jewell like terrorizing college kids in the dorm. The fact that none of this plays with music to direct your emotions. I mean, if anything, I think the movie could use even less music, but it's the kind of artistic decision that I think make these later Eastwood movies so rich and ambiguous. So yeah, Jewel has a couple of days of being a hero until the FBI, led by the sinister John Hamm, determined that, well, the most likely suspect is the one who first fingers the bomb. Yeah, and I mean, John Hamm is very annoyed as the FBI guy that this doofus who isn't even a real cop, not even state police, like a literal just security guard without a badge that, you know, he's stolen the spotlight. And I mean, what's so incredible about that scene after the bombing where John Hamm comes in and he's like asserting dominance, he's, you know, just dick waving against all these lesser cops and he's saying all right you need to follow my lead right now so you can help us get to the bottom of what's going on here and protecting people and that's really really important because what the movie's saying here is that look john ham is acting on the same noxious impulses that richard jewell is when he's you know pushing around college students or whatever but society respects john ham society right. likes that's john right. ham society considers this behavior legitimate when a guy like john ham does it and that's very very important to what the film is doing. Richard, it's Watson. What are you doing in there? They said they need me for a training film. No, they don't need you for, you're a suspect. Have you read the newspapers? Have you signed anything? Have you confessed anything? No, of course not. I didn't do this. All right, listen to me, listen to me real carefully. Just don't say anything to anyone. You understand me? He wants to talk to you. Zeta Shaw. This interrogation's over. Not another word, you hear me? He's been cooperating fully. Hey, did I stutter? No more questions. Get his ass out of there. You hear me? Okay, well, have a nice... He hung up on me. You have a very loud lawyer. Congratulations. 
So Richard Jewell becomes the prime suspect in the investigation. Olivia Wilde, as the journalist, breaks the story. Yeah, there's a scene where her editor is sort of saying, well, I don't really know if we have enough to run this story. You know, if this is really true, and you know, this is the information she's got from seducing John Hamm. If this information is really true, then why isn't it being reported on CNN? Why, why doesn't the New York Times have this? But, you know, she basically says, oh, come on, you know, it's the fat fuck who lives with his mother. That's who did this. We got the story. We need to break it now. We need to get ahead of the other media outlets. And you know, really, she's just she doesn't care what the truth is. She's thinking about her career. She wants to be the journalist who gets the scoop so that she gets to go on CNN. And of course, as we've seen, it's certainly not increasingly true that there's an incentive structure that prioritizes being first over being accurate. So Jewel has been back in contact with Watson Bryant to help him negotiate his book deal. But now Bryant becomes his attorney in this terrorism investigation. And by the way, I think maybe now would be a good time just in talking about the movie's critical and cultural reception to just read a representative article from the time. Now, this movie, I mean, it got some award nominations. It certainly got quite a bit of acclaim from many critics. So I'm not exactly reclaiming a hard done by cultural object here. Nevertheless, it did have a very notable backlash. A representative article is the review in Time magazine by Stephanie Zacharek, who, by the way, is a good writer. I'm not bringing up this article to paint it as foolish or anything, because I think it raises good points, as well as conveying something of what people were feeling ambiently in the culture at the time this movie came out. So after acknowledging the quality of Eastwood's craft, she writes, But if Eastwood is careful in mapping the complexity of Jewel's case and the certainty of his innocence, he's so reckless in other areas that you wonder what he's thinking. Eastwood has expressed politically conservative leanings. He has identified himself as a libertarian. But it's a fool's errand to pin stark political motives on every film he makes. He's never as obvious as his detractors would like him to be, though that's not to say his ideas don't leak through. He's attracted to stories in which the underdog triumphs, Million Dollar Baby, as well as fables of pro-America heroism, American Sniper, and just plain doing the right thing heroism, the 1517 to Paris. His movies are blunt, but often ideologically slippery. So far, so good, by the way. Mm. Sully would be another one to throw into the Absolutely. Here, Eastwood shows the utmost compassion for Richard Jewell, the wrongfully accused little guy, but his generosity stops there, and he shows particular vitriol and distaste for Scruggs. As Wilde plays her, she's a brazen smarty, a seasoned pro who zips from here to there, wherever the sirens take her. Her blouse may be unbuttoned a little too low, her skirt is perhaps a bit too short, but it's all part of the game and of her personal style. In an early scene, she flirts openly with Shaw. They're pals, sort of, and it's no one's business if there's ever been anything extracurricular between them. She goes on to criticize the scene where she seduces John Hamm for the story. Incidentally, uh, just a point on Olivia Wilde, in case people don't know this, but she is the daughter of Andrew Coburn and Leslie Coburn, two very accomplished journalists. So, you know, Patrick and Alexander Coburn are her brother. Uh, Claude Coburn is her grandfather, very storied British journalist. And I mean, I don't know if that's intentional, but it, it is kind of an interesting detail considering that the journalist she plays in the film is so unscrupulous. The key paragraph in Zacharek's article is the last one. She writes, Richard Jewell is one of those expertly crafted pictures that reminded me how little I care for craftsmanship when a filmmaker's ugliest impulses are thrumming in the background. For all its attributes, this isn't a nuanced portrait of a wrongly accused man. It's a squinty scowl aimed at a bunch of things plenty of Americans have already decided they adamantly do not like. The FBI, untrustworthy to the core. The government, too intrusive by half. 
journalists, it's all fake news. Does Eastwood really believe that to raise up the little guy, you've got to destroy the value of everything else? It's hard to know, but sometimes the audience you're pandering to can overshadow what you're actually trying to say. So again, I think, you know, you can hear in the article that Zacharek's a good writer, and I certainly wouldn't fault a lot of the criticism of the Wild character, but it slips into reviewing the audience towards the end, as well as identifying the movie as, I mean, uh, I don't think this is ungenerous to say, at the time this movie came out, uh, a lot of folks were on kind of high alert about, well, is this is this Trump or not? Is right, this- and, and we watched the trailer actually after we'd finished watching the film. By the way, the trailer absolutely slapped, but I can see how if you watched that and kind of you formed your view of the movie based on it, the trailer is trying to be like, here's an exciting movie. It doesn't really convey the the nuance in the film, and it does it does well, include. There are certain words in the trailer. There are certain. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. what what it does show you is people saying the suspect is a white man, or it shows yeah, he fits the profile of a bad guy, or somebody else saying, "I report the facts." No, you report lies. I mean, you know, at at a moment yeah. when anxiety around uh, journalism being under attack, when democracy dies in darkness, yeah. much was invested in the Trump era and now, but particularly in the Trump era, about the political codification of certain cultural objects. And, you know, Clint Eastwood uh, talked to a chair at the Republican National Convention. Not like he's exactly blameless. <laughs> I mean, you always look at the guy who found the bomb just like you always look at the guy who found the body. But this guy, he's got a bad past. Fits the profile of the hero bomber to a T. The fat fuck lives with his mother, of course. How did I miss that? I mean, that is amazing. You are good. You're very good. This kind of puts a clock on things, though. You want to get a room or just go to my car? This is happening. This is happening. So to get back to the plot, in another heartbreaking scene that, that is filmed in exactly this way Will was describing before, this very sort of drawn out, you know, long take with no music. The story breaks in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, but Jewel hasn't seen it, and uh, he's lured to FBI HQ in Atlanta by John Hamm and the FBI, who are basically saying to him, you know, we're here to talk, you know, law enforcement man to law enforcement man. We, ju- we need you to come and just, you know, talk to us, uh, to, you know, help us get to the bottom of, you know, who, who did this. And so there's this just heart-wrenching scene where you just see Richard Jewell just driving to the FBI office, completely unaware that he's a suspect. Someone says something to him as he's getting in the car, like the reporters have already gathered like buzzards outside of his mom's house. And one of them says, what do you think about being a suspect? He's like, I'm not a suspect. Again, he's so invested in, you know, the inherent virtue of law enforcement that he just is unable to process the idea that there could be anything bad going on here. So we see him go to the FBI office as, you know, clearly a suspect. They're clearly up to no good. There's this incredible shot where they park and he gets out of his car and he looks behind and there's just this line of cars that have followed them. And he's like, what are these reporters? And then John Hamm gives him this very sort of douchey, jocular, you know, pat on the shoulder and says, nope, nobody. Those are our guys. They take him into an interrogation room. And this is where I guess we first really start to get the sense of just how unethical John Hamm really is. Well, I mean, it's basically set up where they have a camera filming him and they're trying to get him to make a false confession on camera. They're trying to get him to sign away his Miranda rights on camera. And they say, well, we need you to sign this piece of paper. And he looks at it. And because Richard Jewell is like a pedant who reads the penal code at night and knows about law enforcement, he says, I'm not really comfortable signing this. And John Hamm goes, 
okay, yeah, you know what, buddy, that's fine. We'll uh, we'll we'll just uh, here. I'll throw away the tape. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna leave the room and I'm gonna come back in. We're gonna get the tape rolling again. Uh, and you know, he's basically just trying to trick Richard Jewell in, in any way he can. And this is not the only time in the movie where we see this happen. And some of this is what makes the movie a slippery ideological object, particularly in the context of 2019, because, you know, this is a movie that's saying the FBI and the media are institutions of dominance and power. And this is at a moment when... Oh, the FBI are going to save us from Trump. Well, exactly. (laughs) And so so is the media. media. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. The moral arc of the Richard Jewell character is in realizing that law enforcement, which he's looked up to his whole life, you know, institutions of power are actually corrupt and corruptible. And actually, he himself is no better or worse than these great men who occupy those positions. God, so we see Richard Jewell go home and his mom, I mean, again, just one of these heart-rending sequences, his mom is turns on the TV and sees Tom Brokaw talking about how her son has now been accused by the FBI of planting the bomb. And, and she says to him, why would Tom Brokaw say that about you and he's just weepily you know I, I don't know absolutely heartbreaking He's tried to place calls to Sam Rockwell, uh, his lawyer, when he's at the FBI headquarters. He can't get through. We do see a scene, and you're talking about, you know, the ideology of this movie, and that Time Magazine write-up pointing out that, you know, sometimes Clint Eastwood's ideological proclivities come through, and there's a scene where, you know, up, up to this point, I kind of wondered, why is Sam Rockwell, why is his character's secretary, like, why is the film given her a Russian accent? That just seems like an odd detail. Like, what's that in the service of? Then when she gives Sam Rockwell the news that Richard Jewell has been accused and there's all these voicemail messages. She then says something like, where I come from, government says you're guilty, it means you're innocent. So, you know, I guess that definitely solves the question of the mysterious Russian accent. Now, in the ensuing scenes, there are more kind of heartbreaking moments of, you know, the FBI trying to interrogate Richard Jewell. You know, I already alluded to this scene where there's the ATF and the FBI right after the Waco reference conduct this raid on the house. They're doing so much stuff that just serves no purpose except to humiliate Richard Jewell and his mother. Richard Jewell, having been told by the Sam Rockwell character, don't talk, don't say anything that's weird. Richard Jewell has such a just an inherent respect for the FBI that he's sort of saying, well, you know, they're law enforcement and so am I. So I'm going to help them, you know, search the house. And he's just constantly offering them assistance. He's wearing blue rubber gloves and he's picking stuff up and helping it around. The FBI then takes his mother's underwear in a box and, you know, she is so humiliated by this and, you know, runs out of the house. Sam Rockwell goes after her. And while Richard Jewell is inside, John Hamm and one of his associates trick Richard Jewell into saying into a voicemail, you know, they say because, you know, we need a vocal fingerprint. This is the, this might be the only thing, by the way, that's going to prove your innocence. There's a bomb in such and such a place, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they're basically trying to record a false concession. And then just, I mean, they, it's so belabored. The scene drags it out. It's like they get him to do it so many times. You know, John Hamm is just saying, well, why don't we take that again? Maybe a little more dramatic. You know, let's just, let's do another take. And if there's one thing that Clint Eastwood hates, it's multiple takes of scenes so (laughs) well actually you know this isn't related to the plot but uh you know something i love just about the style of this movie is there are a number of scenes including actually uh, specifically the various interrogation scenes where you can tell they didn't do a lot of takes and you can tell that eastwood gave the actors a certain license to kind of improvise a little bit it's one of the things that makes the movie so powerful if this movie was made in a sort of more gentrified you know netflix or hollywood style first of all you'd have richard jewell played by a different actor i'm sure well like joe 
Jonah Hill, who was the original actor who was supposed to play him. Right, exactly. But secondly, you know, every line of dialogue would be delivered in the kind of most airtight way. It wouldn't have this kind of spontaneous organic quality, which really is in the service of just the emotional punch that this film is constantly hitting you with. Fewer takes is often better, I guess, unless you're Stanley Kubrick. But it continues to be a point of contention between Richard Jewell and his attorney that Richard Jewell, you know, keeps cooperating with these people who are trying to destroy his life. And he says, I was raised to respect authority, sir. Now, what follows is, for me, the movie's most devastating scene. And I don't think I can do it justice in description. So I think we'll just play that for you. Come on. Stop being such a doormat. Stop trying to be their best friend. You know, they're making fun of you out there. You know what they're calling you? I know that. I know what it means when he says cop to cop. He doesn't mean cop to cop. He thinks I'm... Do you? The Pillsbury Doughboy. I thought you guys were going to get engaged. Hey, Richard, you go for a cookie right now, I'm going to chop off your hands and shove them up your ass. Try eating a cookie then, fucker. Why did you want to represent me and be my lawyer? Hey, you look like you needed some help. You look like you might have needed money from a book deal. Well, let me ask you, why'd you pick me? There's a lot of lawyers in the phone book. What'd you pick me for? I picked you because you were the only one at the U.S. Small Business Admin Bureau who didn't treat me like a five-year-old and call me bag of snacks and blimp, Michelin Man and Pillsbury Doughboy. You're the only one who treated me like a human being. And now you're just yelling at me, telling me to be somebody that I'm not. Now, that scene comes right after, you know, we've seen the uh, the FBI leave the house. And here we get John Hamm with one of his best deliveries in the whole film, where he turns to Richard Jewell and he says, thanks for your professional consideration, cop to cop. And he gives him again one of these kind of patronizing jocular attack. Uh, ta- cop to cop. Cop to yeah. cop. Yeah. Patronizing little jocularities. And what I love about the way Hamm delivers the line is that he doesn't need to maintain the fiction anymore. This is just straight up bullying. This is an expression of power and dominance and it has no purpose except to make him feel powerful and Richard Jewell feel small and stupid. In the last act, certain character arcs are resolved. The Olivia Wilde journalist character realizes upon accepting the challenge to time the amount of time it would take to walk from the phone where the call was made to the tower where the bomb was, realizes that Jewel couldn't have done it. The last shot we see of her is her weeping in the audience while Richard Jewell's mother complains to the media about her son's villainization. Yeah, and and this just to call back to something I, I mentioned earlier. I mean, I'm not sure I really buy this. I mean, it works in the service of the narrative, but it does seem a little inconsistent with the character being as unscrupulous and unethical as we've seen. I don't really understand, you know, this sudden revelation because of, you know, she has this emotional revelation where she she decides like, OK, I'm actually going to be a journalist and, and actually, you know, investigate and see if there's any chance that he did this. And obviously he didn't. The FBI yeah. has no case. Well, you know, having suddenly realized that it's possible to use the power of the pen to destroy a life. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Uh, Probably the movie's weakest point. The character of Richard Jewell reaches his emotional climax in another, I think, slightly hammy scene where he goes for one final interrogation with the FBI, this time in an office setting accompanied by his attorney, where he delivers to the John Hamm character a a powerful bit of folksy wisdom about how uh, he realizes they never had a case against him the whole time. And gosh, his whole life, he'd 
looked up to law enforcement, but now he's not sure he should have. He sort of bamboozles John Hamm with an epic truth bomb. It's a little implausible that, yeah, John Hamm is just rendered speechless when every man calls him out and says, you got no case against me, sir. But there are two, I think, legitimately pretty great scenes that the movie ends with. There's a scene of Watson Bryant and Richard Jewell in a diner where they're visited by the John Hamm character. This is some months later who delivers them formal notice that Richard Jewell is not a target of the investigation notes that I still think your client is guilty as hell. Yeah, I can't let go of that. And in a beautiful bit of acting by Paul Walter Hauser, he begins weeping into his donut. I don't know how to describe it, but there's nothing movie star about the way he weeps into that donut. It's so raw. But the final scene I think is particularly interesting. Uh, Six years later, Jewel is now working in the actual sheriff's office in Atlanta. He has a desk job with a full uniform and everything, and he's visited by Watson Bryant. They haven't seen each other, it seems, for a long time. Watson Bryant delivers him the good news that the actual person who bombed the Atlanta Olympics has been apprehended. And then, looking at Richard Jewell in his uniform, Watson Bryant says, Look at you. In this kind of, I'm not quite sure how to describe, it's beautifully acted by Rockwell. He says, Look at you. And then he goes away. And then there's a final look at Richard Jewell's face. And then it fades out. And I've always interpreted the look at you as a little ambiguous. Absolutely. Because Watson Bryant, it's been established that he's a libertarian, basically. Skeptical of all authority, but particularly combative with law enforcement. He spent the movie trying to drill a respect for government and law enforcement out of Richard Jewell. And then there's the final scene where, you know, he smiles when he says it, but there's an obvious tremor of ambivalence in his voice where it's like, yeah, well, you know, even after all this, you didn't give up the dream. You became a cop. And then the movie fades out. And Eastwood wisely doesn't underline it. And in fact, I think this could be interpreted as a happy ending if you wanted it to be. But I don't interpret it as such. It's not a sad ending either. It's something else. I mean, that's interesting. Let's talk about that some more. I mean, would the word tragic be applicable to you? Like, not in the sense of being sad, but in a sort of more... But, but in the, sort of the uh, more an existential sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there was no escape for Richard Jewell. There's another sad scene right before a rather maybe leadenly symbolic scene where the FBI comes back to Kathy Bates's apartment, and gives her all the stuff that's been apprehended as part of the investigation. And it's all has like numbers written on it with marker, like all of her Disney tapes or her Tupperware, or everything has has that. Right. And it's I mean, so it's been defaced and it's there. And what it symbolizes is that the stain of this in some way will never be erased. But then the final scene with Jewel, where he's become a cop, it's like he never found another model other than this. He never took the red pill. Uh, whatever the red pill might be in this in this case. Um, I, I'm saying that with quotes, folks. Um, he never actually learned to fully distrust authority or to divorce himself from what the cops represented. Once his name was cleared, he continued on that path. He continued striving for that big brass ring of becoming a cop and and he got it but then it's so important that the brass ring is like okay well it's at the sheriff's office and it's clearly he's just like a pencil pusher that's right yeah he gets to wear the costume yeah and it's the costume that matters even after that fiery speech he gave to john ham he wants the costume well yeah i think existentially tragic is the way to interpret this final scene the wonderfully understated delivery of that line by sam rockwell and also richard jewell's predicament at the end of the film In spite of everything that's happened to him, in spite of whatever limited way, you know, he may now be more skeptical of authority, 
this is still the only fulfillment he can find. This is the only source of self-actualization available to him. And there really is something deeply tragic in a more straightforward sense about that. How are you? How is, uh, my God, how's Nadia? I found him, Richard. Found him? Eric Rudolph. He confessed to the mommies at Daniel Park. You know when he's being right? I don't know. Could you find out from me? Look at you. So, I mean, I think we've principally talked about two things in relation to this film. One is the character of Richard Jewell himself and the kind of tragedy that we're left with even at the end of the film, you know, in spite of his vindication. And we've talked about what the cultural reception of the film was at the time and kind of why some people were very skeptical of it. And even, you know, some of the ways in which uh, that skepticism might even be warranted. But I'm curious to ask you, Will, I mean, what does the character mean? You know, and if there is a sort of thesis that's being offered by this movie, what do you think it is? I don't know if this is a direct answer to that question, but it might be relevant. In the early 1970s, Clint Eastwood did an interview with Playboy where uh, he was asked about the poor reception that greeted, you know, one of his great films, The Beguiled, directed by Don Siegel, one of his most atypical films. And Eastwood said, and I quote, Dustin Hoffman and Al Pacino play losers very well, but my audience like to be in there vicariously with a winner. That isn't always popular with critics. My characters have sensitivity and vulnerabilities, but they're still winners. I don't pretend to understand losers. When I read a script about a loser, I think of people in life who are losers, and they seem to want it that way. It's a compulsive philosophy with them. Winners tell themselves, I'm bright as the next person. I can do it. Nothing can stop me. That's, okay. That's incredible. Can and, you believe that? And so, yeah. and so, first of all, that view is not consistent with the films that Clint Eastwood have spent the past, you know, 20 years making, or many of them, certainly. Uh, but, it's, it, yeah, it's but, incredible. But, but secondly, that is exactly the view that we were talking about off the top, well before we started talking about Richard Jewell. That is exactly the view that culture is everything, right? If people are losers, it's because they want it that way. It's because they've, they've, they've... Certainly they've... consistent with uh, a libertarian <laughs> point of view. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, he's made several movies about, I mean... I don't know if you'd call Sully a loser. He had a he had a good job, but like he's made several movies he's about an ordinary person, yeah, ordinary people who 15, like seventeen to Paris. who threw yeah. a uh, threw a quirk of fate. Yeah, they won the lottery and they became a hero. And I don't know if Eastwood would say, "Well, they found the part of themselves that wasn't a loser and they harnessed it," or whether he'd be more like, "Ah, eh, the universe is random. Who knows?" Well, I don't think so because if if that was the case, then this film would have ended differently. I mean, I guess it's a true story, but I mean, he wouldn't have. He, I don't think he would have made the film or like the be a fundamentally different movie if at the end it was like uh, and then Richard Jewell was a celebrity and he lived happily ever after or then Richard Jewell became an FBI agent himself or then Richard Jewell found something completely different to do with his life in which he was spiritually fulfilled that is not how this film ends and it's not what the character means and I don't think Eastwood would have been interested in telling this story if that was going to be its conclusion so, Will, I feel like, you know, I asked you, what's the editorial, you know, what's the thesis of this movie? And I feel like all you did was add a further layer of complexity where you quoted Clint Eastwood in the early 70s, just, you know, doing like classic right wing bootstraps rhetoric. So I feel like you haven't helped things. And in response, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn this back on you again, because you are you are very much, you know, the podcast house expert on Clint Eastwood. I mean, do you think that there has been a shift in his perspective as an artist? 
Do you have any insight into why he apparently abandoned this view, at least, maybe, I don't know about politically, but abandoned this view in terms of, in the, you know, informing the, the films that he makes? I mean, I think first and foremost, he's a storyteller. My sense from him, from his interviews, I mean, he's not an unintelligent man, but he's also not an intellectual. And he was what, by the way, like 89 when he made this movie? Incredible. I think he understands drama. There are obviously certain things that he returns to over and over again. He's interested in like how heroes are constructed in the media, like Flags of Our Fathers is like that. He has a career long distrust of pencil pushing bureaucrats. A sort of glib and easy, but also, I think, true thing to say would be, you know, he made his bones, uh, as he says, playing winners, Dirty Harry, the man with no name, you know, cool guys, and then directing movies that complicate that. I I saw an interview with him once around the time that Flags of Our Fathers and Letters of Iwo Jima came out. They came out within months of each other. One was about the American side of the war, and one was about the Japanese side of the war. And he said something almost as simple as like, well, you know, I was just kind of interested in seeing uh, the other side. (laughs) And one One of the signs of a good artist is... He's interested in stories. Yeah, the the, the capacity for empathy, the interest in people who are unlike him, a curiosity about all sides of the cube or whatever. And I think that's what separates, yeah, not just the good conservative artists from the bad, but many of the good artists from the bad. He comes back to pencil-pushing bureaucrats so often because, like, let's face it, that's what he believes. Uh, He doesn't like the red tape. He doesn't like the bureaucracy. But he's interested in people and stories. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for today. Uh, I will just say, if you haven't seen the film, I mean, I know if if you've gotten this far into the episode, we've kind of told you everything about it. But this really would be one I would recommend watching. Whether you think it's somehow reactionary or not, it is a remarkable piece of filmmaking. And watching it, I think, was a very interesting experience but I was also very moved. As Will says, if nothing else, uh, the sign of an artist at work.